Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Hi, welcome back. So we're looking at a response to Jean Hippolyte's commentary on Freud's Verneinung. So we previously discussed Lacan's introduction to Hippolyte's commentary. We haven't looked at Hippolyte's commentary, though it is in the back of the book, Écrit, as an appendix that you can read yourself. Nor have we spent much time talking about the Freud essay in question from 1925, Verneinung. On negation is the translation of that from the German, negation. And so there's a cluster of terms here, one of which is negation that has to be sorted out. Another term here is Beyahum, which is in German, it means affirmation. And what Lacan is here referring to is a kind of primitive, mythical almost affirmation presupposed by any negation of um, symbolicity, of language use. We'll unpack that here in a little while. Another term to have in mind here is repression. Repression is not the same thing as negation, so we'll have to understand the difference there. And then another biggie on the table is um, foreclosure or verwerfung, which also comes up in this essay. Um, These are all German terms, all four of these, um, that Lacan is making a lot out of in ways that Freud did not so much. But Verneinung, negation, Freud did make something of. So let's see what we can think about with this term. It's a short little essay from 1925 that Freud writes. Um, It begins with an interesting example that kind of captures the essence of what's up with negation. Someone sits down and tells you about a dream. And you might ask them, well, what's this dream about? And who was that woman in the dream? And the person might respond, well, it certainly was not my mother. And Freud is going to respond and say, aha, if you were there in that conversation. Your mother came to mind. There was an association that you had there. You affirmed that association, and then you negated it. But it's not about her. You can think of this also in terms of um, this double gesture where you affirm something only to negate it when you're telling yourself or another person about who you are. I'm not the kind of person. Or expressions like, that's not me. In order for you to say, that's not me, you usually have to have in mind some sort of a behavior that you think somebody else might associate with you. So lying, honesty. You might get caught in a lie, and in part of your apology, you might say, you know what, I'm sorry I told that lie. That's not who I am. I'm not the kind of person who lies. Here you are negating the very act that you're guilty of. You're negating something that in order to negate, you have to first affirm. And so, beyahung is this term that captures this primitive affirmation that presupposed, that is presupposed by any negation. Because in order for you to say what you're not, you first have to identify what that thing is. So, I'm not a liar, which presupposes an affirmation of, lying, of the possibility that you might think I'm a liar, 
that we both understand what lying means, that you are going to recognize that what I'm doing here is speaking a language to you. That's the most basic affirmation, which we'll come to. So the idea here is that negation precedes conditions and makes possible <clears throat> any sort of, um, uh, of denial, any sort of activity. But here's the thing. In order to negate something, you have to first have acknowledged or affirmed its existence. So there's a primitive affirmation that goes into every negation. Now, in fact, if you were going to like sketch these out in terms of order, logical order, you'd have first this primitive affirmation, an acknowledgement that language is being spoken, that we all know what the meaning of lying is. Then you might have negation, where you say, I'm not the kind of person who lies. So you have affirmation, negation. And then let's say, nevertheless, that you suspect you are, you might repress that thought about yourself. Repression would follow negation here. In order to repress an idea, to take something and shove it under water so you don't want to think about it, you don't, want to, you don't want to have it come to mind. In order for that to occur, you have to negate it. And it's to the point that Freud, even in this essay, says that the no of negation is like a certificate of origin. For example, like made in Germany for repression. Every repression, every repressed signifier or image, if you dig back far enough, is going to have a negation at its start. Freud says, at its origin, made in negation. So he even goes so far, Freud, in this essay, to talk about this affirmation denial sequence as um, tracing back to oral imperatives for the infant. So to affirm would link up to the infant's impulse to eat something, something that's good to eat, to introject or bring something inside oneself and to unify with it as a result. So if you eat food, you create a union between yourself and the thing that you just ate because you're all kind of like together as one there. That would be affirmation. And then denial, Freud says, negation traces back to seeing something that is not yummy, but instead yucky, that you take out of your mouth, that you expel, that you're not interested in which would not link up with unification, but more with like destruction or expulsion or re not rejection, but rejection is kind of close here. Um, so you have these, these two imperatives to affirm and to negate, which trace back to the oral imperative to ingest or expel. And this is the work that Freud is doing in this essay. Lacan thinks it's important so he invites his homie, Jean Hippolyte, to come in and give a commentary on it. Now, Hippolyte is important here for reasons that we don't need to discuss much, but Hippolyte's a great commentator on the work of Hegel, who was also very influential in Lacan's early career, albeit through a single figure, Alexandra Kozhev, who is a Russian immigrant giving lectures on, Lacan in the, or on Hegel in the 30s that Lacan is attending. Um, so Lacan's fascinated by Hegel. It's maybe one of the most influential thinkers on his work, um, right up there with Heidegger. Um, it puts us more in the realm of, of history of philosophy here, intellectual history. Um, so we're not going to go too far into it. Uh, but he respects Hippolyte because Hippolyte is a premier Hegelian scholar. And what he brings Hippolyte in here, I suspect, is because one of the key themes in Hegel is negation. 
And here what Hippolyte comes up with, if you go to the appendix and you read what he does with this Freud essay on negation, is he talks about the negation of negation that would happen in one of these moments. He gets into a couple of Hegelian dialectical moves here. So we can come back and talk about that later. That's absolutely something that's interesting. Right now, though, I want to focus on the Lacan essay. The essays in which Lacan introduces and then offers commentary on what Hippolyte does. If that said, you want to go ahead and check out the Hippolyte um, essay, it is in Appendix 1 at the end of Ecree. It begins on 746, makes a few interesting moves, the key of which is to integrate this German notion of Aufhebung into what he's doing with this Freud essay. And again, that expression comes up. This is what I'm not. I'm not the kind of person who. And then Hippolyte's commentary builds on that expression. What's up with somebody saying this? Now, in analysis, really quick, you might come up against somebody who says, I'm not the kind of person who tells lies. And if you were in that conversation, let's say you were the psychoanalyst, you might respond and say, ah, yes, but in claiming that you're not, in denying that you're the kind of person who tells lies, you suspect at some level that I might think you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to tell that to me. So what you could do in that moment is cause the person to say, oh, you know what, yeah, actually, I thought maybe you had heard a rumor that I was a liar or something like that. Um, and I do accept that I've always been a little nervous because, um, I don't know, like um, you could be like, I'm very, a very good speaker. And people sometimes think that that means I might be like, you know, full of BS. And so in other words, you might accept that what you previously denied has some sort of nervous tinge about itself relative to you. In other words, you might accept that what you denied because you denied it might be more relevant to you than you initially admitted. Now, if what you deny is a negation, I'm not the kind of person who tells a lie. If you then accept that nevertheless, the fear of being a liar or seen as one is of issue to you, Hippolyte says, you have effectively negated the early negation. So to accept what you previously denied is to deny the denial, to negate the negation. So you see, this is how he gets into some Hegelian stuff here. Almost certainly this is why Lacan brought him in to comment on this essay. That business occurs on 748 to 749. It's pretty good stuff. Um, the other key passage here in this appendix, if you're working through it, is 752, where Hippolyte traces out Beyahung and Verneinung, um, affirmation and denial, interjection and expulsion, unification and eros. It kind of breaks down into a nice little column here. And he does some pretty interesting work here to say that um, Beyahung can be substituted for unification but Verneinung follows expulsion, which is different. It's not exactly a substitute for expulsion. It follows expulsion. That work is done on page 752. 
we're not going to mess around with it much. The more important part for us is how Lacan responds to this essay by Hippolyte again. And that's where we'll turn to next. Hey, welcome back. So we're looking at this response to Jean Hippolyte's commentary on Freud's Verneinung. We just heard a little bit about Freud's essay and a little bit about Hippolyte's commentary. Now let's look at Lacan's response to Hippolyte's response to Freud. It starts on page 318. It's a terrific essay. And one of the great works in this essay is defining Beyahun. This term that is crucial, I think, to Lacan's philosophy of language and of communication, and also of his philosophy of the subject. His theory of the subject is very much hooked into this notion of Beyahun, which in German means affirmation, a confirmation of sorts. On page 319, Lacan gives us a definition toward the bottom of the page, about midway through, but heading towards the bottom of Beyahun. A mythical moment rather than a genetic moment. And what he means by that is that genetic means at the start, one, two, three. That's not what Lacan is talking about here. When he says mythic, he means more like original in the sense of origin versus genus. And this is important because um, the genetic move is to say that one begat, two begat, three begat, four, and so on. It's a very linear chronological approach to how things unfold in time. What Lacan is here doing when he uses the word mythical is he's talking about the way that a biyahung or an affirmation is presupposed logically, not chronologically, but logically prior to an act of negation. Now that's not a question of genesis. That is a question of origin. An origin is something seen from a later moment. So you can right now look back at your childhood and say, ah, those were the defining moments. And you could probably list them. It might be a parent's divorce. It could be an accident that you got into. It could be a great performance that you were a part of. You fill in the blanks. My point, though, is that you look back from the present onto a past that you then convert into your history by saying these were the defining moments. That is an original act. That's a look at your origins. Not where you started, but your origins. The parts of your past that contribute to mostly defining your present. That's what he's suggesting here with Beyond. You need to have this retrospective approach, retroactive even. The key theme here is negation. But what Lacan wants to point out is that in order to negate something, you must first have affirmed its existence. So the example we were working with in the last lecture was I'm not a liar. Well, in order for me to deny that I'm a liar, I'm not a liar, I'm not a liar, I'm not a liar, I have to presuppose a lot of agreements particularly the possibility that you might think I'm a liar, that I might feel I'm a liar deep down, which is why I have to deny it, particularly in speech addressed to you in hopes that you'll believe me. There are lots of affirmations that go into any particular negation, is Lacan's point. In order for there to be a disagreement, a whole series of agreements 
have to occur beforehand. You could think about this, for instance, as um, having a disagreement with a friend or a roommate or a family member. There are implicit rules about how that agreement's going to unfold. There are certain things that are acceptable and unacceptable in a fight. So you might have a disagreement with a roommate and you know that the rules of that disagreement exclude violence. You can't hit them. You can't throw stuff at them. You can't stab them, shoot them, all that stuff is off the table. Now you don't have to sit down with them and have that discussion about the rules of the road before you engage in a disagreement with them. It's assumed that even though you might disagree on who did the dishes last, there's a whole field of agreements that are in place to make that disagreement ideally productive, but at the very least safe. So you're not going to get hurt. They're not going to beat you up over something like that. That is a bayahum. There's a primitive affirmation, a primordial agreement that is implicit here in an act of negation or disagreement, right? This is kind of what we're getting at here. You can also think of the question that you might put to someone, do you understand me? That's a tricky question because if you answer no, hasn't that also confirmed that you already understand them? You understand enough to say no. Similarly, even if somebody comes up to you and says, now you might not be Korean. If you are, you know exactly what I just asked. If you are not, however, you will nevertheless recognize that as a language that is being spoken to you. And your response might be, I don't understand. Notice, you don't have any idea what was just said to you. You have no idea what I just asked. You don't know what that means. But you recognize it as a linguistic act addressed to you. You recognize it as language. You affirm it as a linguistic act. And you treat it accordingly by saying things like, I don't understand. To respond, I don't understand, to anpigon haseyo, is to confirm that it's language, to say, I recognize that you're addressing that to me. And because we're operating in the field of language, I can respond linguistically and maybe you'll understand. Even though you don't have any idea what I just said, and maybe if I'm Korean, I have no idea what you just said. Very doubtful because most Koreans speak English, but very few American English speakers speak Korean. Beyahung is a mythical moment rather than a genetic moment, Lacan says on 319. One cannot even relate it to the constitution of the object since it concerns the relationship between subject and being, not between the subject and the world. So this is a very primitive start of everything mythical moment about the origins of language use. Repression is one of the central concepts of psychoanalysis. In order to repress something, you must first negate it. And in order to negate something, you must have first, at some basic level, affirmed it. And the term for that affirmation is beyahung. That's why we're talking about this.
You can see on 320, the next page, Lacan starts to hint a little further at this, at a discursive structuration on the basis of a primordial symbolization. That's Bayahum, that primordial symbolization. One of the key questions that comes up on 320 is also one of the great ways of understanding what he means by the real. What is excluded from the first moment of symbolization? He says on 320. Well, one of the things that oftentimes gets excluded from that, especially if you have the underlying clinical structure of psychosis, he says on 322, is castration. Now, castration here, again, doesn't mean some physical operation on the human anatomy. That's not what we're talking about. Castration in the Lacanian sense means prohibition, feelings of dependence, recognition that the world in which you live is not of your own making, and an acceptance of that. Castration is something that most humans accept. You accept that you are alienated in a world full of rules and terms and languages and laws and norms that are not of your own creation. And you just have to get on with it. The psychotic is somebody who fundamentally forecloses, utterly rejects that initial moment of castration. You can see it coming up at the bottom of page 322. Lacan says, quoting Freud, that some patient did not want to know anything about castration in the sense of repression. Now, what Lacan wants to make of this is saying they didn't want to know about it at the level of repression, which is a fundamentally neurotic or normal function, because they were experiencing it at the level of not repression, but verwerfung, foreclosure, which is something different. You can see this at the bottom of page 322. Now, some of you have seen my lectures on Seminar 3 and Psychosis. We're not going to get into that here. But do note that the topic of Beyahun comes up in Seminar 3, in the early 80s in particular. It's a great book, a great volume, not our focus here, but lots of work is done on this notion of Verwerfung. Er Verwerf sie. Lacan's going to make a lot of this verb, verwarf, which means to foreclose. Here he's using the word excise. Eventually it'll become foreclosure. He forecloses castration, bottom of 322. Again, the good source for this is seminar three, and you can see my lectures on that elsewhere. It's as though you that didn't even exist. That didn't even occur. The castration and the prohibitions that most of us endure in order to become normal subjects with a coherent, relatively stable identity, the psychotic rejects as though it never even happened, he suggests at the top of page 323. <clears throat> the theme of Verwerfung and Beyahum, foreclosure and, negation, or, and affirmation, continues on on 323. They are opposed to each other. These are oppositional moments. Normally what happens is somebody affirms, accepts, that they have to use words not of their own creation. They have to speak the mother's tongue in order to get their needs met. That's what I'm doing right now. The language you're hearing now is not one that was invented to coincide with my birth. It was there long before I showed up. And 
over time, my primary caregivers integrated me into that language and infused me with it so that now I speak it fluently, unconsciously, without even thinking about the words that come up. That's what it means to be fluent in a language. All of that presupposes that I accepted that original moment of prohibition. Remember, the prohibition we're talking about here is a prohibition against continuing life without prohibition. Infants don't know prohibition. When they need to go to the bathroom, they go to the bathroom. When they're upset, they cry. It's only with the advent of language in society that people start to learn, babies, infants, toddlers, start to learn that there are certain places where it's inappropriate to go to the bathroom and others where it is. And so they learn to play by rules, in this case potty training, that are not of their own creation but imposed on them from without. And they accept that. They affirm and acknowledge that those rules exist and play by them. That primitive affirmation, that primitive acceptance of prohibition here is known as bayahum. The psychotic subject, according to Lacan, is somebody who does not accept that. Who acts as though there aren't any rules about when and where to go to the bathroom, for instance. That's what he's working on here on page 322 and 323. We'll come back to that in a minute with a close reading starting on 323. Okay, a close reading starting on page 323. We're about a third of the way down. The paragraph begins the process in question, here known as Ververfung, which I do not believe has ever been commented on in a sustained manner in the analytic literature is situated very precisely in one of the moments that Professor Hippolyte has just brought out for us in the dialectic of Verneinung. Ververfung is exactly what opposes the primal Beyahung and constitu constitutes as such what is expelled. We were just talking about this. You will see proof of this in a sign whose obviousness will surprise you, for it is here that we find ourselves at the point at which I left you last week, a point beyond which it will be much easier for us to go after what we have just learned from Professor Hippolyte's talk. I will thus forge ahead, Lacan continues, and the most fervent devotees of the idea of development, if there are any here, will be unable to object to the phenomenon that occur, occurred too, at too late a date to constitute a primal scene, since Professor Hippolyte has admi admirably shown you that it is mythically speaking that Freud describes it, this Beyahung, as primal. And again, we know what he means here by mythical. He's not talking about genesis, but origin. Not where things started, but where it appears things began looking back at once past. A mythical or original moment, not a genetic one. Ververfung thus cut short any manifestation of the symbolic order. That is, it cut short the Beyahum. That Freud posits as the primary procedure in which the judgment of attribution finds its root. Now what it means here by attribution is secondary to what Freud means by existence. A judgment of existence is to acknowledge whether something exists. So, is the building on fire? Yes or no? That's a judgment of Beyahung, according to Freud, because you're judging whether there is the whether a fire in that building exists. 
Later, once you have affirmed that there is a fire in that building, then you can raise the question, are the attributes of this fire dangerous? Should I be concerned? Should I call 911? Technically speaking, when I cook dinner and the oven is on, there's a fire in that house. I affirm the existence of a fire in that house. I can then go on to say, are the attributes of that fire dangerous? The answer is no. If, however, the building is in flames, reaching up into the sky, obviously I'm going to say the attributions of that fire are dangerous. But first, again, I have to have this primitive moment of affirmation that a fire even exists. That is a judgment of existence, Freud says. That's what he means by Beyahung. And what Lacan wants to do is take that judgment of Beyahung and apply it to the symbolic, to the advent of language, the origin of which is castration, the name of the father, the no of the father. That's where Lacan wants to attach Beyahung, is to the symbolic order and its founding. Excellent stuff on page 323 towards the bottom. We are moving quicker than that, though. Top of 324. Lacan returns to this quote from Freud about the patient who did not want to know anything about it, namely castration, in the sense of repression. That passage means a lot to Lacan. Here, notice where he goes with it. Four lines down on 324. For in order for him to be able to know something about his castration in this sense, it would have to had it would have had to come in some way to light in the primordial symbolization. But once again, what becomes of it? You can see what becomes of it. And then here's the key point, italicized. What did not come to light in the symbolic appears in the real. Now, this is a kind of misleading passage. What should be said here, technically speaking, it should be said that what, does not, what did not come to light in the symbolic appears in and as the real. This is how we get the real. The real as a category in Lacanian psychoanalysis does not precede the symbolic. On the contrary, the real is whatever is left of the swimming here and now world in which things, if they aren't even things, are confusing lizards and rocks. You see how we just are getting way before language or anything like that. This primordial state of being before language is not the real. The real are the among other things, it is comprised of the parts of that original here and now, fluid, infantile, bioanimalistic existence that can't be fit into the symbolic. It's whatever the symbolic can't metabolize, account for, and represent. That's what becomes the real. The real is what gets excised left unsaid in the symbolic. It's what gets kicked out, if you, if you will. But even the in and out here doesn't quite work. 
because the real is really a rip or a tear or some aspect of the symbolic where the symbolic can't quite shine its light. That happens in the symbolic. It's a blind spot, a dark spot in the symbolic, not some external world. And if you want to be very technical about it, you might even say that those dark spots in the symbolic are precisely what legitimate it. Precisely the dark spots that allow the symbolic to operate. The symbolic needs those dark spots in order to function. We've got lectures on that elsewhere, so I won't go into it too much here. For that is how we must understand and then we've got another German phrase here, meaning taking into the subject. And another German phrase taken from Freud's essay, meaning expelling from the subject. What gets expelled is what constitutes the real. And notice how Lacan puts it here. The latter constitutes the real, insofar as it is the, it is the domain from which subsists outside of symbolization. Now again, that outside is misleading here. It's an outside that exists within the symbolic order. And that's, the, that's, the, that's one of the, the hooks here to understand about how the real operates. It doesn't precede the symbolic, nor does it exceed the symbolic. It exists within the symbolic. Exists. It's not even actually an existent entity. That's its dilemma. This is why castration, which is excised by the subject here from the very limits of what is possible, but what is also thereby withdrawn from the possibilities of speech, appears in the real, erratically. Erratically is a great choice of word here. The real wanders through the symbolic as error, as erratic. In other words, it appears in relations of resistance without transference. To extend the metaphor I used earlier, I would say like a punctuation without a text. Very interesting. I love these metaphors. They're terrific. He goes on to talk a little bit about the real, again emphasizing that the real is something outside the subject that is expelled. And then noticed on the bottom of 324, the real gets an even more crystalline definition. Four lines up from the bottom. The real, namely that which is excised from the primordial symbolization excised from the Latin ex schemere, same schemere word for scissors, cut out. But it's not a cut out that is then cast aside beyond the symbolic. It's an area of the symbolic where if you were looking at it like a fabric, a cutout would appear. The whole would emerge within the fabric itself. It's not something that's cut out and thrown aside. It is a cut out from within the fabric. This is the best way to understand the real. And 324 does a really good job of explaining this. He then gets into a discussion of hallucinations, which continues for a while and is pretty useful. There's some good stuff on Deja Vu in there as well on page 326. But that key passage for us on 323 to 324 is where I would really recommend focusing your attention. And one of the great takeaways here, as we've discussed, is how the real operates, how the real is generated, engendered, 
by the symbolic. So even in this primitive moment of Bayahun, you're going to have certain parts of lived experience that get excised, where the light of the symbolic does not reach. The difference, though, between a neurotic and a psychotic subject, according to Lacan, is that the neurotic accepts that there is this thing that gets constituted by the symbolic at its outer reaches, an internal blind spot known as the real. The psychotic doesn't even get that far. They reject the primitive affirmation, the bayahung, that would necessarily be in place for anybody to accept that there could be blind spots in there. The great blind spot in me, of course, is the unconscious, which is where I shove all the repressed signifiers from my life. Human beings live in a field of blind spots. We have so many just within ourselves. Don't forget, that's the primary stake here. Normal people repress, pushing signifiers into the unconscious. The psychotic expels signifiers from the unconscious, if they even interact with signifiers at all. For normal, and here I don't mean happy or content, I just mean what's average. The average person, the usual people, with some neurotic symptoms, which is also quite normal, or is as close to normal as I think Lacan would say you can get, are people who endure repression. In order to endure repression, you first have to have an experience of negation. So let's go back to that example one more time of I'm not a liar. There are times when I've told lies, you might think to yourself. And I don't want to think about those times because I don't believe that's the kind of person I am. You might say things like, oh, everybody makes mistakes. And one of which was when I lied here, there, or the other. Oh, everybody just makes mistakes. You don't want to think about that. You don't want to have that in your mind. You don't want to think about all the times that you've lied. Because that doesn't comport with your sense of self, with your ego, that believes it's not a liar. So you repress those memories of the times you told lies. But in order to repress those times and those memories, you have to first at some level negate them, deny them. But in order to negate or deny them, you have to first affirm their existence. So that, again, is the logic we're working with here. For repression to occur, negation has to first occurred. And in order for negation to occur, an affirmation has to have occurred before that. You can't repress that which hasn't already endured this process of negation, which implies a primitive affirmation. This is one of the reasons why, just because it's out of sight and out of mind, doesn't mean that it's not going to pop back up into your perceptual field later. Why the return of the repressed is always the flip side of the coin of repression. In part because the very structure and mechanism known as repression has this dialectic built into it of affirmation and negation acceptance and denial, Bayahung and Verneinung. 
that are being wrapped up in ways that simultaneously index an experience or an event or an entity and cancel it. Yet another reason why we're looking at Jean Hippolyte here. Hippolyte is a great commentator on Hegel, and one of the great comments on Hegel that Hippolyte makes the most of is Hegel's use of the term Aufhebung, which is a German term meaning to preserve and to cancel at the same time. Isn't that exactly what repression does? It is a cancellation and a preservation of some part of ourselves that we don't want to think about. That's one of the central stakes in this little trio of, of writings by Freud, Lacan, Hippolyte. More soon. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned on Substack and Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts for more episodes soon. And big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for today's theme music.